The text for us today is Luke 9, 18 to 27. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed, and the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of his Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. This is the gospel of the Lord. We're going to break the teaching into two parts today. The two questions we're going to ask are, who is the Christ and who are Christians? And by the nature of these two parts, you can see the foundational nature of what Jesus is going to talk to us about today. This is basic Christianity, right? This is what it means to be a Christian. Who are we following and what does it mean to follow him? And then hopefully by the end of that, we're going to tie a bow on this and bring it all together. So if you grab some notes from the back, uh, you can still do that. Uh, If you're online with us, you can find the notes in the description of the video uh, to follow along there. So first, let's ask the question, who is the Christ? Uh, The text starts with Jesus uh, asking his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? And they give a number of interesting answers as to what people think Jesus might be about. Um, We don't have the time today to chase every single one of these and figure out why they might have thought these things to be true about Jesus. But suffice it to say, people had numerous opinions of what Jesus was about when Jesus was walking the earth. But then Jesus turns the question on his disciples and says, well, okay, that's what the crowds say, but what about you guys? Who do you say that I am? And Peter gives that great confession. You are God's Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word Meshach, which means anointed one. It's the same word in Greek that you say Christus or Christ. It is the one whom the Old Testament has prophesied about as God's chosen one to bring salvation to all people. The one who is going to fix everything that is wrong, right everything that has been broken. But what's interesting is what Jesus does next, right? And you can see it on the screen. Instead of giving Peter the old pat on the back, good job, man, you're right, I am the Messiah. Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Which might strike us a little bit odd at first. But I think there are two really good reasons for Jesus to do this. The first is that Jesus is managing his time on earth. He knows that if this message of him as the Messiah gets out and into the wrong ears, it's going to mean that he's going to get killed faster than he wants to. If the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders of the people hear that he's claiming to be the Messiah and that a lot of people are believing that, they are going to be even more likely to get him on a cross as fast as possible. So he's managing himself a little bit. But I think also we can see that by what Jesus says next, I think he thinks Peter doesn't totally get it. Like Peter's saying the right words, but he doesn't have the whole picture of what the Messiah is in his mind. Because what does Jesus say next? He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things 
And be rejected by the teachers, the elders, excuse me, the chief priests and teachers of the law must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. He has to explain, what is the Messiah here to do? Now, the Messiah was no small thing in the Old Testament. Like, if you were familiar with the Old Testament at all, you were familiar with the idea of the Messiah. It's like being a Christian without knowing who Jesus was. So you would think that Peter and these other guys would have some concept of what the Messiah was, and if they had it right, Jesus wouldn't have to explain it to them, but he explains it to them, which leads me to the conclusion that maybe Peter had the right words, but didn't understand those words. He was right that Jesus was the Messiah, but he had a different idea of what that meant. Now, if you've been spending any time in Christian churches, you probably have heard pastors tell you that at that time, people thought that the Messiah was going to be some sort of geopolitical influencer who was going to right all of the wrongs that have been done against God's people, and he's going to restore Israel to its former glory, and that's absolutely true. That's what many people believed at that time, and maybe that's what Peter believed. It sure seems from the other gospel accounts that that he's not okay with this idea of Jesus going to the cross, which at least insinuates that's maybe what he thought. Could that have also been the opinion of the other disciples? I don't know. But what it ought to make us meditate on is, could the same thing be true about us? That we would look at Christ, and we would call him Christ, but we wouldn't understand exactly what that means. That we might have our own ideas about what that means for us. And Jesus would need to explain it to us. I think there are two ways that we can fall into the trap of seeing Jesus as Christ, but misunderstanding what that means. On the one hand, I think there is the side of Christ that is the good teacher side. Of course, we can blame all the people outside of our walls who would say, yeah, Jesus was just some guy who lived. He told us some good stories. He had some good wisdom. He was a good moral teacher. He maybe taught us how to live a better life. Of course, that's out there, and that's wrong, and that's a misunderstanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. But remember, Jesus isn't talking to all the people out there. As he says this, he's talking to his disciples, people who should know. So what could it be in a Christian church that would be that same kind of attitude? Could it be that we would see Jesus as one who gives us good intellectual ideas, good teachings, good ways to live, but nothing more than that? Could that manifest itself in coming on Sunday to listen to the preacher preach and think about all the deep intellectual ideas of the scriptures, be fascinated by them, want to read more about them, but never have them really sink down deep into your heart to change who you are? Could they be listening to what the Bible says in order to hold on to some vestige of what Western civilization is supposed to be so you can knock down all of your ideological opponents? Could it be that it's simply an inspiring speech that makes me feel good for a while? It's some intelligence that I'm glad to intake. Maybe this manifests itself most obviously in the person who thinks that being a Christian is mostly about listening to sermons rather than plugging into the life of a church, worshiping with other believers, integrating their life with other believers. They see it only as an intake of information, a logging of all the facts, rather than an electrifying, enlivening message that changes who I am. Could that be any of us? If so, then hear what Jesus says. I'm the Messiah, and I'm coming to be rejected and to to suffer and to die. Like, Jesus wasn't some misunderstood teacher with some radical ideas that got him killed a little bit before his time. He intentionally came to die. He's not just a moral teacher. 
He came here to do something far better. He's not just an intellectual guru to make you a little bit smarter, a little bit wiser for your life. He came to die to do something far bigger than that. So I think that's one way we can get the Messiah wrong. But I think there's another way, and it's even more sinister because sometimes it comes from hearing the gospel. And that is to think, it's nice that I have a savior. I need a savior, let's be honest. I'm kind of messed up, at least not as good as I'd like to be, and my life can be rocky at times, so I'd really like to have a savior because I need someone to clean up what's going on around me. But we don't have a sense of the profundity of our sin. We see Jesus as sort of the Molly maid. She comes in and fixes everything for us that we've messed up so we can go back to our normal life. Jesus is the insurance policy that makes sure that kind of no matter what I do here until I die, I'm good when I go to heaven. Jesus is the savior from my sins. Yeah, but my sins aren't that bad. And I think we can fall into this from hearing the gospel sometimes. Satan comes and he takes that seed of the word of God and he twists it. And he gets us to think, yeah, Jesus is so gracious. You can just live however you want. Who cares? Jesus will forgive you. It's fine. (laughs) Make changes? I mean, my goodness sakes. Jesus already forgave you. It's not like you're going to earn it anymore, right? That's what the gospel is. So, So why work at it? I think this is particularly sinister because it is exactly Satan's temptation that he's been working on all of us since the moment our forefather and mother Adam and Eve fell into sin in the garden. You could be like God. Let me play this out for you. Why do we worship God? I think most people, maybe all of you in this room, would say, well, because he died for us on the cross and rose again. Absolutely. Good answer. Let me ask the question a little bit differently. Ought you to worship God if he didn't do that. If God had not died for your sins and not risen on the third day and you were still stuck in your sin, should you still worship God? The answer is yes. Because he is God and you are not. The very nature of him and the very nature of you, you as a creation of the creator, you submitting to him means that even if he were to not save you, you still ought to praise him. The very nature of who he is and the very nature of who you are behooves you to worship him, to unconditionally love him. What Satan wants us to do is to think that that is switched on its head. That in fact, there is something inherent about us that leads God to keep forgiving us, not something inherent about him. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you to make it real. Um, I wish you could have met my, my grandma. Uh, she was a, a wonderful woman, and she was super generous with me. She, when I was growing up, she would buy me all sorts of things that I totally didn't need but were so fun, and she would give me big gifts of money on my birthdays and Christmas. Um, and, and to be honest with you, I kind of thought it was because I was awesome. <laughs> I mean, I was her only grandson. I was in school to be a pastor. I played drums just like my dad did. I was kind of everything that I thought my grandma thought was awesome, so I kind of thought I was awesome, and I I sort of got used to my grandma just being generous with me and giving me things. I expected the $100 gift every Christmas and so on. I found out later my grandma was not just generous with me, though. She was generous with everybody, to a fault, and she got herself in a whole bunch of credit card debt being generous to people. It wasn't about me. It was about her. But I thought it was about me. And so I started to expect her generosity rather than receive it as the generosity that it was. And I wonder if we do the same thing with God. 
Like God has so freely given us his grace, undeserved, unearned, and he doesn't put any conditions on it, like that that you have to do this or that. And so we start to think, well, I kind of deserve it then. There's something about me that's just going to be able to keep tapping into whatever Jesus has already won for me so I can sort of live however I want. Do you realize what that is? That's me taking the place of God and saying that God ought to worship me. God ought to do things for me simply because of the nature of who I am and who he is rather than the other way around. And very subtly, Satan has tempted us into believing the same lie that Adam and Eve fell for. You could be God. God could worship you by continuing to just sign off on however you want to live. If that's how we feel, and see what Jesus says. He is the Messiah and he came to die. Not to just wipe away a few peccadillos with a, oh, that's okay. He said, no, I'm going to give the very life of God for the sins of the world. I'm going to suffer in the most brutal way, arguably, that human beings have ever invented to torture one another. I'm going to do it and I'm going to separate myself from the very source of life that my God would forsake me because that's how bad your sins were. Maybe to illustrate it for you, the love that that God had for you, the sacrifice that he made for you would be the same as if you were maybe a a scientist studying termites. And you're studying these termites and you realize that the termites have a neurological disease that causes them to kill one another. And so you're looking in your terrarium at all the termites that you have in there and you realize they start to kill one another and start to kill and the, the colony is getting smaller and you realize, okay, this is happening and you don't want it to happen and so you try to figure out a solution. You ultimately come to the solution that you need to go down into the terrarium as a termite in order to communicate with the termites that you have the solution to their problem. And here's the catch. Once you become a termite, you can't go back to being a human. Oh yeah, and the termites just ate through your house. Would you do it? Jesus did. He saw a group of beings who were far inferior to him, who were hurting one another in their sin and have broken everything that he perfectly created for them. And the only way to save them was to become one of them and communicate the message that he was willing to give up his life for them. And he did it, and he can't go back. Right now, at the throne of God, the second person of the Trinity is a human being. He will not give up that body. That's what your God had to do for you in order to save you. And I think at some level that makes us uncomfortable. Because it first of all smashes through this idea that, that good people get good things. Or like We like to compare in our world. Some people are better than others for whatever reason we might decide. Behavior, values, background, socioeconomic status, doesn't matter. God says no. Literally every person has broken God's world so much so that nothing less than the death of God could pay for it. And then it offends us, I think, on another level in that it gets personal. Like God looks at you and says, this death on the cross, this is, this is your fault. This is not some small thing, not some oopsie. This was the breaking of the cosmic order that every one of us has participated in. We may not feel like it because maybe we haven't killed somebody or cheated on our spouse or whatever thing you think is particularly terrible. 
But given the right circumstances, every one of us has the capacity to fall into those things. It's our fault. And therefore, our sin is a big deal. It's finally a big deal how we spend our money, how we spend our time, what we entertain ourselves with, what we teach to our children, how we speak to our coworkers. All of this matters. And that should break our heart. Because God had to go through that for us. That's how bad our sin was. And I'm not expecting that every single Sunday you're going to come here and you're going to be brought to tears at the profundity of your sin and what it took God to save you, but it should strike you at least a little bit. How bad things are. Until you hear how good things are. Because that Messiah who came to suffer and then die, he also rose again on the third day to save you, to forgive you for every one of those things, little and small, from the smallest little peccadillo to the biggest heinous crime. It is all forgiven freely because of his death and resurrection. Whatever love he had in putting himself in human flesh and dying for you, I don't know if we'll ever understand it, but it's real. And it's yours. And it's this inescapable straitjacket that Jesus puts us in of his love. He says, you could even try to get out of my love and I'm not going to stop loving you. Yes, all of this is our fault, but we have a savior from it. And that's who Jesus wanted his disciples to see him to be. Not someone who could be a helpful person to have on their side. Not a person that can give them some intellectual truths. But the very reason that they got up in the morning. And so once again, I'll ask us, who do we say Jesus is? Did you fall into one of those two categories? Maybe both? Today's the day to repent. And look to Jesus as the one who took all of your sin and made you a new creation. Which leads us to the second question. Once we understand who the Christ is, then who are Christians? And Jesus is thinking that exact same thought. If this is who I am, then this is who you ought to be. He starts by saying, whoever wants to be my disciple. Uh, the first question we have to ask as we look at part two of this section is, what is a disciple? Of course, Christians are disciples. That's the ideal. That's what Jesus is saying. If you're going to be a Christian, you will be a disciple. Okay, but what is a disciple? A disciple comes from the Latin word discipulus, which means student. It comes from the Greek word mathetes, that means the exact same thing, a student, right? And, and that's fine, but students, I think in many of our minds, are something like this. A, a person who sits in a classroom and listens to, listens to a lecture. But in the, the broader sense of this word, and in the ancient mind, a student wasn't just somebody who was intaking information. It was somebody who was a student of both word and action. They would learn the words, the, the teachings, the ideas, and they would learn the actions associated with those teachings or words or ideas. Or maybe a really easy way for us to understand this is to say that disciples are apprentices. Wait, what are apprentices? Apprentices are those who walk with somebody who is an expert, not just learning the words that they say, but also practically working out those truths. Jesus says, if you want to be my apprentice, which again challenges us to think, what do we think of the Christ? Is he one who just gives us words? Is he one who just teaches us actions? 
Or is he one who, is he one who expects us to apprentice under him? If you want to be his apprentice, then, he says that there are things you must do. He says you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow him. Now, before we work through each of those three ideas, denying, taking up the cross, and following him, I want you to notice one thing that you might have skipped past as you read this text, and that's the very first words of this verse. That he said this to them all. Up to this point, he's only been talking to his disciples. This whole thing about the Messiah and who do the crowds say that I am, this is among his disciples. But it is at this point where Jesus turns to the rest of the crowd and he announces to all of them, if anyone wants to be my disciple, this is what it takes. Which is interesting as we think about what it means to be a disciple today. Do we lead with this? If you want to be a member of Cross of Life, if you want to be a Christian, do we say this? I think sometimes we don't because we want the message to be easy, to, to go down smooth, to be a little bit more palatable. So we don't challenge people with what Jesus actually said about what it means to be a disciple. And my hope as a pastor of this congregation is that I'm constantly challenging us to this. And not just us who sit here every Sunday, but every person that comes into our door. If you're going to be here, we're going to be biblical disciples. And that's going to be a challenge. But it's what Jesus calls us to be. And I think that in order to see this as valuable, once again, we do have to see Jesus as the Messiah. That the problem was so bad, but the solution so profoundly intense and beautiful that what could we do otherwise but be his disciples? So he says to them, okay, all of you, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, the first thing he says. What does it mean to deny yourself? Uh, this word deny is the same word that uh, Luke will use later in the gospel when he talks about how Peter will deny Jesus three times outside the court when Jesus is on trial. You remember this story? The people come to him and they say, hey, you were with him. You're a Galilean. Aren't you one of his disciples? And the Bible says that, Jesus, that Peter denied Jesus. And do you remember exactly what he said? I don't know the man. That's the same word that Jesus uses here to describe what discipleship looks like in the life of a Christian. I don't even know the man. I know I've told this story before, but it's, it so wonderfully uh, illustrates this point. Uh, the church father, Augustine, uh, was a particularly sexually promiscuous man in the first part of his life. But when he became a Christian, he revoked that part of his life and was celibate. And as he traveled around telling people about Jesus, he once went to a town where a woman whom he had previously had a relationship with saw him and she called out to him, Augustine, Augustine. But he ignored her. She kept calling, Augustine, it's It's me. And he turned around and said, I know it's you, but it's not me. Who I was, I don't even know that man. And so then think about what that means for every one of us. When we follow Jesus, when we disciple under him, when we apprentice with him, who we are becoming should be so different from who we were that we might say about our previous self, I don't even know the man. That we would look at the way that we used to spend our time, or we used to spend our money, or we used to entertain ourselves, or we used to talk, or we used to post, or we used to scroll, or whatever it is, and we would say, I don't even know that person. I think that's hard, because there's a whole lot of things about our life that we kind of like, and we're really hoping Jesus is okay with them. But Jesus says, no, if you're going to be my disciple, you will deny yourself. 
You would say that person that naturally wants a certain set of things, a certain set of experiences, a certain set of standards of living, that can't be who I am anymore. That's not me. He then says that a person who will disciple under him will take up their cross daily. At this time, the cross was a very famous instrument of torture and execution. This was how the worst criminals and usually defectors or uh, those who had uh, committed terrible crimes of betrayal against the Roman Empire were killed. Uh, It was not just a tool of torture and death, it was a tool of humiliation. It was supposed to make a person suffer as much as they could possibly suffer before they died. And so you can imagine the, the surprise on the disciples' faces as Jesus says this to them. Okay, if you want to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross daily and follow me. Uh, By the way, when we think of carrying the cross, I think sometimes we think that this is sort of what it means, like you're carrying the whole big thing. It's probably not that. It's probably something more like just carrying the cross beam. It's a heavy load that we need to carry all the way until we finally die. How attractive does that sound to you? (laughs) Not very, right? If you want the comfortable upper middle class life where things go relatively easy and smoothly for you and there's not really any stress or difficulty, this is not a comfortable message. But it is what Jesus called his disciples to do, to suffer for the faith. Now, what could that suffering look like? Well, I think a good place to start is looking at Jesus' suffering. What did Jesus' suffering look like? The willingness to silently go through the worst that humanity could throw at him for the sake of blessing others, right? Would you feel even just a a small part of that in your Christian life? Well, absolutely. It might come from the people who you speak about Jesus to who reject you or don't want to be around you anymore, who think you're a little bit weird or old-fashioned or bigoted or fill in the pejorative word. It might be the suffering of seeing the value of raising your children in the faith as more than having more money or having more freedom. It might be the suffering of having to deal with a spouse who maybe they're Christian or maybe they're not, but they certainly aren't acting like a Christian and you have to deal with that and and continue to love them and be patient with them and forgive them and speak kindly to them even though they don't deserve it. It might be the suffering of realizing that God calls us to be generous with our money for the sake of advancing the mission of the kingdom. And that might mean that I don't get to go on as many vacations or have that second car or live at that standard of living or go out as many times as I would like to. But I have to suffer. It could be any number of things, but it is what it means to be a Christian because every single one of those things blesses another person. It's not sadism. It's not suffering for the sake of suffering. It's suffering for the sake of blessing another person. This is the Christian life. And if you're not feeling it, (laughs) if your Christian life is relatively easy, I wonder if you know the Messiah. I wonder if you know the one who talked about how bad our sin is and then showed us how much he loves us and then asked us to tell other people about it and to live in line with it. Finally, then, Jesus says the last thing is that they must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Just like I showed the kids, following is not something where you get to choose what to do. You just do what somebody else does. In other words, this is giving up your right to direct your own life. You might have a plan. I'm going to do this and this and this. At this stage of life, I'm going to be married, have this many kids, have this much money, live in this kind of house, live in this kind of city. I got my plans. Jesus says, okay, we'll see. If you want to be my disciple, you're going where I'm going. 
And it might be where you want to go, and God be praised if it is. But it might not be. And if that bothers you, then look back at the Messiah. What did Jesus save you from? From your eternal death. Following him is the best choice. Jesus wraps up this section by saying that whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. Because what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? In other words, he says, all of this, I know it sounds hard. It is. It's not comfortable. It's going to push you out of your, your normal way of living. But what's at stake? Your eternity is at stake. The eternity of others is at stake. Why would you try to gain comfort for this little bit of your existence that you call life on earth when you have an eternity to look forward to? And so do others. To illustrate this for you, I'll pull back the illustration I used on Ash Wednesday. I know some of you were here, but because of the weather, many of you had to miss. So I'll use it again. Imagine you're playing a board game like Monopoly or something like this that has currency that you can exchange. Monopoly money in this case. How ridiculous would it be if someone was playing Monopoly and they started pulling out of their wallet real Canadian $20 bills and started playing them in the game? Ridiculous. Because as fun as Monopoly is, for some people, it's not real. It's an illusion. It's, it's a game. It stops and you go back to real life. And why would you spend your real hard-earned Canadian dollars on a game that's passing away? And yet how many of us do exactly this with our life? You got 70 or 80 years if you have the strength. They are but trouble and toil. And we spend so many of our spiritual resources on them. Rather than looking to something that will last far longer and is far more real, which is eternity with God. Why waste your resources here on this that is passing away? Whoever wants to gain their life, whoever wants to have it good here, they're going to lose it. But if someone is willing to admit that they are a sinner and find their Savior in Jesus, the Messiah, then they will be willing to give up comfort in this life for the sake of that message. Or to maybe put a bow on it, when you know the Christ, you will be a Christian. If you know the wrong Christ, you will not be a Christian. But if you know the Messiah who came to suffer and die for you and rise on the third day, then you will be a Christian. Because the profound nature of that sacrifice will melt your heart to the point where nothing is off limits with Jesus. Wherever Jesus wants to go, you will follow. Whatever Jesus wants you to suffer, you will do it for the sake of another. Whatever you need to change to be more like Christ, you will throw it away and say, I don't even remember that part of my life. So let me put a bow on this. Uh, You need both of these. You need the Messiah and you need the teaching of what it means to be a disciple. Unfortunately, in the lives of many Christians and many churches, and it's going to be a temptation for us too, we want one or the other. On the one hand, we might be those people who are a little bit more sensitive and we feel like we just need the gospel. Just tell me that I'm forgiven. Just tell me that I'm okay. I get it. Maybe you have something in your past where you have been, you have been hurt, maybe by a previous church who preached a message of you have to clean up your life and be better or otherwise you're not going to be saved. Or maybe you were part of a family where you had a domineering parent who would not show you any love unless you obeyed them. I get it. There are lots of things that affect that. And it can push us to want Jesus with no discipleship. But that leads to a dangerous place where we see Jesus as essentially the sugar daddy in the sky who just lets us kind of do whatever we want. 
And the other side can be attractive for some. Maybe those of you who see the fall of Western civilization and the the corruption in the church and see all these people who just call themselves Christians, but frankly, what does that even mean? And you say, Christianity needs more discipline. We need to work at the things that Christ has called us to be and to do. And so we're going to hold tightly to the law that God gives us. But remember, you can't have that without the gospel. That is a message with no grace, no forgiveness, no love. It is a message that will put heavy burdens on people without any hope of them being relieved. You need both. And so I hope to keep bringing you both. I know it's challenging. <laughs> I've heard from a number of you that sometimes my preaching is intense. <laughs> it's, it's supposed to get in your personal space and make you uncomfortable. Not because I like it, not because I like, get my jollies off of making people obey me or something. Like, Frankly, what I want to do every Sunday morning is I want to drink my coffee, show up at 9.45, get the Lord's Supper, be forgiven of my sins, come to 10.15 worship and hear Jesus talk to me and not have to put my, my face or my words on the line for scrutiny every Sunday. I don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. I don't like that. But what else can I do? He's God. He died for me. And he died for you too. And so whenever we challenge each other to deny deny ourselves, to take up our crosses daily and follow Jesus, it is because we want something better for each other. I love you guys too much to leave you away from God's words, to not challenge you to live them. So know the Christ. The Christ who came and took on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, giving up his heavenly riches, becoming poor so that you in his poverty might become rich, become the righteousness of God because of the sin that he became for you. Know that Christ and then go be a Christian. Let's pray. Jesus, this challenging message starts with us admitting our sin. By your Holy Spirit, lead us to repentance and then a deep love for your word. It shows us the good news that we are saved, that we are made right, that we are promised heaven as a free gift, and that you have called us into a life of discipleship. May both those things permeate our congregation, our conversation, and the way that we live in our community. For your glory. Amen.